How would you respond? <laughs> I have no idea. Bovcast. 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 This is the Bovcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink. Hey, Bob Squad, we're back. We? We. You mean mostly you. That is true. This is Bobcast once again. I am Andrew Smith. And I'm Caleb Castro. It's been a while, huh? It's been a while. <laughs> Since I could Bobcast with my squad. Yeah, we've been off the air for a little while. I've taken about the last month and a half off as I was getting ready to graduate seminary, which update on that, I have now graduated from seminary. So you say. What? Can anyone actually verify that? I don't know. Maybe our old uh, our old co-host and friend and founder, Mark Scaturro, who also graduated from seminary at the same time, actually two slots in line before me. You can't prove that. Eh, there's video. It's on the internet. If you're really concerned. But yeah, so seminary's done for me, and at least on summer break for you. So what are you up to this summer, Caleb? Well, first of all, congratulations. It's quite an accomplishment, and I uh, am looking forward to being right behind you, though on the other side of the United States. So this summer, now I'm going into my fourth year of seminary next fall. So right now I am doing a summer internship actually back in California in uh, the Central Valley at a United Reformed Church. And uh, yeah, so I'll be here for the next couple months. And uh, Andrew, you're no longer in California. That is true. At the time we're recording this, I'm back in Wyoming with family, as I was for a while last summer. But by the time this airs, I will be, along with my wife Heidi, in Anchorage, Alaska, have a summer internship lined up there at a Presbyterian Reformed Church. Uh, so we're excited and looking forward to that. I've never been to Alaska. I've always wanted to go, so it's an exciting opportunity to go see what the Lord is doing up there. Also, to get as far away as possible from Caleb without having to get citizenship in another country. That's pretty much about as far as you can get. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I was a little excited. <laughs> <laughs> You know, now it's, it's kind of like a bobcast on the road. Now we're just kind of running all over the place. So if there's any listeners in Alaska, especially in the Anchorage area, uh, be sure to go and track down Andrew and uh, hassle him from the pews. Similarly, if you are in the Central Valley of California, go and hassle and heckle Caleb. Or don't. Or don't. Well, so lots of changes, and uh, this also means that we in some ways get more time for bavcasting. Yeah. So we're going to start something new here today. Oh. A new series of episodes looking at a very, very important topic. Perhaps one of the topics most important and most central to Reformed theology. 
which is Covenant. The Rapture. We'll get there. Close enough. <laughs> and by get there, we'll talk about why we won't literally get there, at least maybe not the way we think. Um, You'll be left behind. Wish we'd all been ready. Um, yeah, Covenant Theology. <laughs> so Covenant Theology is central to Reformed Theology. Uh, pretty much every Reformed theologian you can trace back to Calvin or even earlier to Zwingli, uh, to Bollinger. We're starting to work with this concept of covenants as far as how to read and understand the Bible. And so this summer, we want to take a little time and through the works of Bob Inc., because, you know, that's kind of what we do here, and others, talk about covenant theology and, you know, maybe introduce some of our listeners to covenant theology for the first time and talk about some of the issues and debates and so forth with covenant theology present in our time. And Andrew, you said the idea of covenant is important and central to Reformed theology. I think we can also add, I mean, really, covenant is highly important and found in, as far as I know, just about every system, tradition of, uh, of belief. But there are different ways in which how people read the covenant, uh, what they do with that covenant. You know, there can be some confusion Right. Sure. Uh, just speaking a little bit for myself, I came from a dispensationalist background. Now, you might hear dispensationalists and wonder, well, what is that? It's an idea that uses some of the language and concepts of covenant. Like they talk about covenants being present throughout the Bible, but they organize things differently. Basically, dispensationalism is the idea of God working with his people in various dispensations could be anywhere from just a few to i believe in like schofield's classical scheme there was seven different dispensations but what that introducing a lot more discontinuity across various administrations in the bible and most christians in the united states evangelical christians are probably some form of a dispensationalist these days whether they realize it or not exactly even if they don't know it yeah I can also add to that, it also tends to be pretty closely tied with uh, the idea of premillennialism, where you have this idea that the return of Christ will only occur after he removes the Christians from earth, all believers from earth. The rapture. And through the rapture, and everyone else gets left behind. And then Kirk Cameron has to assemble a uh, an A-team to go and convert Jews in battle the Russian Antichrist Nikolai. No, not really, but actually, yes. The idea of premillennialism is basically after the rapture, uh, where the Christians are secretly removed from planet Earth by Jesus Christ, uh, there will be a bit of a period of turmoil. And at the end of this period of turmoil, Christ will return to institute his kingdom physically on Earth. And he will personally reign on Earth for a thousand years before a final resurrection of everyone and a judgment of the living and the dead, uh, or living in those who were dead. And like you said, uh, you're, you're using uh, some words like dispensation and administration. The whole idea is this idea of God's divine managing, this divine relationship that he has with his people. 
in how and what he does in that relationship. You mentioned the uh, the seven ways, there's classically seven dispensations, seven different ways that God would save people throughout the history recorded in the Bible. He had seven different programs of salvation throughout the Bible. Right. This is wrapped up in that eschatological system there, view of the last things. So basically what is happening in the tribulation and the millennium is after dealing with the church during the church age, God is ready to once again deal with national and ethnic Israel. And so that is why, for instance, dispensationalists will believe in such things as the temple being rebuilt on its mountain in this earthly city of Jerusalem. It's why they'll think of things like what's really important in their scheme is, I say scheme as in their model of the the Great Tribulation. Like that plays out to be a huge point. They look at Daniel 9 and they say, you know, that their way of reading the Bible, it needs to be totally literal. Uh, You know, they are Bible people. They want to follow it to a T. So they tend to look at certain prophetic literature like Daniel 9 which clearly has to do with the future things. And they say, well, it's talking in Old Testament language. This must be talking about a future Israel. This has to be all about a a literal temple with a literal nation of Israel being the ones that receive all the blessings. And so they end up funneling a lot of their reading of the Bible pretty much in two ways, what God is doing with the Christians in salvation, and then what he's doing with the ethnic Jewish people. And we go through all this detail on dispensationalism because, like I said, most American evangelicals hold to some version of this, whether they realize it or not. So when I was a child, This is what I was taught. This is how you interpret the Bible. This is especially how you interpret prophecy in the book of Revelation. There weren't really any other options, any alternatives presented. It was basically, this is the way it is. And if you're anything but this, well, you just don't believe the Bible. You're some kind of liberal or a heretic or something of the like. Just to share a little bit of my personal experience... As I got into adulthood, began to study the Bible more, so I had a bit of a crisis because I was reading the Bible and all these things I'd always been taught, I was not finding them in the Bible. They didn't seem to match the textual evidence. All these things like, there must be this seven-year tribulation, there must be with this a rapture of the church away. These things weren't there, and this was what led me to begin to study some alternative views that ultimately led me to Reformed theology and Covenant theology, and I found that that made better sense of what I was reading in the Bible. So, bringing up dispensationalism by way of introduction here is to say that you might be this, whether you know it or not, but maybe there's a better way. Or maybe you're not that, but realize that a lot of your friends and family may be, and to understand this is the predominant perspective in our day. And even if not the traditional classic dispensationalism, say of, you know, Old Moody or Dallas Seminary, there's also modified 
more modern types of dispensationalism that softens some of the amount of dispensations, but still place a strong focus on Israel and things like the rapture. And you find these uh, even in in some Calvinistic circles, like with uh, Masters or even in in the writings of John MacArthur. Mm -hmm. Um, So it it is prevalent even uh, for those who believe in things like, say, predestination, the doctrines of grace, the the things that we might identify as, oh, reformed. The, the idea of dispensationalism is really not uh, a reformed thought at all. It's not a reformed way of reading the Bible. Now, we would have to do a, a whole other series on dispensationalism to get all, into all of that. And our main focus, though, is, again, on the covenant. Right. And so we turn now to look at covenant theology. So, covenant theology is a hermeneutic. Like dispensationalism, but different from it, it is a method of reading and understanding the Bible. And what it does, and where I think it is particularly helpful over and against dispensationalism and other views, is it provides a way to read the Bible in unity and harmony. One of my struggles growing up dispensationalist is I often didn't know what to do with the Old Testament. Like a lot of it was just read as like, well, this is good history. These are good examples of how to live. But they really didn't have it. They really didn't get what we get uh, because that doesn't come until Christ. Well, what covenant theology does is it provides a unifying way to read the Old Testament and New Testament with application and relevance for us from the Old Testament and how we can look at the New Testament and learn more about the Old. It allows us to look at the whole Bible we have and understand what's going on, the single unified story it's telling all throughout. We can find in Scripture itself already the principle of reading covenantally. Uh, So one example directly in Scripture is in Galatians 4. Uh, If you were to go to verse 21, You see Paul uh, talking about the nature of the covenant, and he uses uh, Hagar and Sarah to explain it. Now, Paul says, Galatians 4.21, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband." Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. What we hear in this, uh, now Paul is talking about the differences between the law and the freedom found in the gospel. Paul explicitly used the word allegory. And uh, some people have the, the, an issue with allegory, that, that it draws unnatural conclusions between texts. It's overly symbolic. But what 
The principle that Paul's really using here, if you heard what he said in Galatians 4.30, he says, what does the scripture say? What Paul's really doing here is he's not reading so much into scripture, but he's reading scripture with scripture. He's using scripture to compare scripture to one another. He's looking at uh, chapters 16 in Genesis and uh, 21 in Genesis. And then he's relating it to his own situation in his own time in light of Christ who has now come, lived, died, rose, ascended, and is exalted. Right. And this sets an important example and precedent for us. We're reading scripture the way scripture reads scripture. Another example of this is one that we see in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 15, at the Jerusalem Council. This was where this Judaizing heresy, the same thing that Paul was addressing in Galatians, comes before an assembled council of the entire church to be dealt with. So in Acts chapter 15, verse 13 and following, uh, James, notably not Peter, you know, sorry, those of you who want a papacy based on Peter, James gets up and he addresses the council and he quotes from Amos chapter nine. So in verses 13 and following, James gets up to speak. He says, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So what you have here, James is actually quoting from Amos chapter 9. And then he goes on to say in verse 19, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. So what James is doing is he's taking this text in Amos 9 that... For instance, a dispensationalist would probably read having to do with restoring the temple in Jerusalem, restoring the Davidic monarchy in Jerusalem at some future day. And James is saying this is happening here and now. So in his situation, which was the first century, the founding of the church. So James is interpreting this passage of a restored temple and monarchy and saying the church is the fulfillment of that. So we need to pay attention to how the New Testament uses Old Testament texts like these and not load them with our own assumptions, but rather let the Bible speak on its own terms about them. Right. You're perfectly underlining how it is that the entirety of the Bible, New Testament and Old Testament, for Christianity are the complete revelation of who God is and what he does. There's a perfect unity and harmony in what is going on in scripture. I want to give just one more example. I won't read the text just to save time uh, so we're not belaboring this point, but perhaps something that's very familiar to us, but we don't think about too much. You have in Matthew 26, where Christ is instituting the Lord's Supper. And Christ says in verse 28 of Matthew 26, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. And we have there that word covenant. 
what he's saying here in referencing the blood, the covenant, and forgiveness of sin is, is referring back to an event in Exodus 24. And there, that's where Israel's gathered at the foot of the Sinai. Okay? And a bunch of oxen are sacrificed. And then their blood is collected in a bowl. And then half of the blood in the bowl is sprinkled on the altar uh, as an offering to God. And Moses then read the book of the covenant. These are the details of the Ten Commandments that you can find in Exodus 21 to 23. So he reads this book of the covenant. And when he finishes proclaiming this word to the congregation of the people of Israel, Israel proclaimed their faithfulness in God's statutes. And then Moses goes and takes the other half of the ox's blood and he sprinkles it on the people. And that this blood was a visible sign of God's invisible but real grace to each individual Israelite. This, this is basically him saying, I am yours and you are mine. And so you have there in the Old Testament a, an expiation of sins by the sprinkling of the blood, uh, both as an offering to God on the altar and on the people to cleanse them. This is already pointing towards what Christ himself is going to be doing as a propitiation for their sins as an offering to satisfy the wrath of God. And this is why he's saying, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. And these are just a few of the examples that are all over the New Testament of making these covenantal connections to the old. The book of Hebrews is basically an entire book dedicated to doing this very thing, showing yeah, seriously the continuity and fulfillment of the Old Covenant, of the types and shadows under the Mosaic Law, um, of Abraham, of so many other things, and how they are fulfilled in Christ and in the church. So, because this is Bobcast, and we like Bob Inc. here, and we use Bob Inc. to do the work we do, um, I have a quote from Bob Inc.'s Reformed Dogmatics, Volume 3, page 212, talking about the covenant theology he says the doctrine of the covenant consistently viewed the true religion of the old testament and the new testament as a covenant between god and humans whether it was established with unfallen humanity so the covenant of works or with the creation in general in the person of noah the covenant with nature or with the chosen people, the covenant of grace. So Bob Inc. is pointing out this consistency, but he's also pointing out some differences. And as we move forward in this series, we're going to look at these different covenants that he talks about. The covenant of works, the covenant with nature, the covenant with Noah, and also, of course, the covenant of grace. There's some other issues as well. For instance, is there an intra-Trinitarian covenant of redemption? We'll get to that as well. <gasps> but is there? Well, I want to know. Well, you'll have to. Uh, I don't want to wait. You'll, you'll have to wait and see when we get there. <laughs> now, one objection that comes up when we begin talking about the doctrine of the covenants covenant theology and looking at these biblical texts like we have by way of introduction uh, particularly raised by dispensationalists is they call this replacement theology they say that we're basically throwing away god's promises to national israel and we're replacing national israel with the church 
and that that's not being faithful to what God has promised them. So, Caleb. Hi. Let's say I'm your dispensationalist friend, and you've told me what you've told me, and I say, well, that's replacement theology. Well, what would you say to that? How would you respond? (laughs) I have no idea. I think one of the things I point to is, how is it that the church came by the the promises of salvation? I mean, what was the purpose for Israel in the first place? Israel was already to be a light to the nations and was to be proclaiming who God is and what he does and expanding their ethnic national kingdom in virtually evangelizing the pagan nations around her. So there was the intention, which it was supposed to be already spreading. But this doesn't mean that everyone was to be basically a Jew. We have to keep in mind that the promise that was given to Abraham is a promise to many nations and many peoples. And this takes the predominant place of how we're to understand the covenant made with the Hebrew people with Moses at Sinai. This is how we need to understand uh, what's going on with the building of an ethnic national kingdom. In a way, it becomes something of a, a shadow pointing forward towards what God is going to do with a heavenly kingdom. He ends up having an everlasting uh, heavenly kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood, every single one of us. So the, the whole point of national Israel is an expansion. Now, specifically, I mean, I, I think you, we can think of uh, Romans 11, though, as a case in point with this. You know, Paul's talking about, you know, well, did God reject his people? Is he going and totally just bypassing them and replacing them? Okay, but he says, well, no. In the first place, God has chosen whom he has chosen. And even within the Jewish people, the ethnically Jewish people, he has preserved for himself a remnant chosen by grace. And he's, But he says, if this is by grace, though, it's no longer on the basis of works. Okay, he, he's done away with the old covenant mosaic system. Paul then asks a rhetorical question, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Basically, Paul uh, here is saying, I mean, that the Lord has already elected his people. He already knows his people. And this goes beyond ethnic bloodlines. Paul's very clear on this. Uh, If not here, he says it also in Colossians 3. He talks about it in Ephesians 2 with the dividing wall of the ethnicity between Jew and Gentile torn down. Christ has made a way for people of all nations, of all peoples. So it's not that the national people of Israel were replaced with Gentiles. It's that the people of God, the Israel of God, now expands to include not just to be limited to Jews, but now is all over in all corners of the earth. Right. Also, you have to look at even the evidence presented in the New Testament of who were the first Christians when the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost. There was over 3,000 converted. Well, this was at the Feast of Pentecost. This was a Jewish feast, and most of the audience were ethnic and religious Jews who then heard and believed the gospel. So it's not replacement in that it's Israel out church in. It's it's expansion and fulfillment 
Uh, it's Jew and Gentile alike united to Christ, their head. And that's the beauty of covenant theology is it's not just about Israel anymore, but it's about them, but it's also about us. Yeah, this is part of Paul's point. And, and I mean, he, he's saying that in the first place, this is a partial hardening that's come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. That has caused various views of the fate of Israel. I think simply, rather than speculating on if there is going to be a, a whole other separate program of salvation just for ethnic Jews, which seems to be contrary to, again, what Paul talks about uh, with the destruction of the dividing wall, we can simply say God knows his elect. And we can, with confidence, believe that that elect includes Jews today and in the future, not because they follow the system of Judaism and not because they were born ethnic sons of Abraham, but only because they would believe in Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of the father as our savior. Absolutely. So I think we're at a good stopping point, uh, having done some introductory work on covenant theology and sort of looked at the big picture of it. Going forward, we're going to look at some of the history of covenant theology, some of the debates and issues surrounding it, and then we'll be walking through the major biblical covenants and looking at each of them individually and what we have to learn about them. We will. Lord willing. Oh, I better get studying then. Yeah, me too. <laughs> That's a lot. It's going to take a while. We'll probably be at this series for most of the summer, maybe even into the fall. But we think it'll be worthwhile. Three years. Three years. Wow. <laughs> for three and a half years of peace and three and a half years of affliction. I mean, if the pace at which we've done wonderful works of God is any indicator, we're going to be here a while. And then once we finish with wonderful works of God, then the end shall come. Yeah. I mean, we have to live that long to even finish wonderful works of God. Don't tell me what to do. Okay. I won't. Well, that should be all the time that we have for today. We have a lot to get to next time, so we're uh, hoping that you will... Join us again, and uh, until then, tote zines. Tote zines. Zotines. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.